continue in our series this Lord's Day, part two, answering the question, what is close communion? And again, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And let us read again verses 7 and 8. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It is often asked if the communion table is the Lord's table rather than the Puritan Reformed Church's table. How can any who belong to the Lord be excluded from his table? Such a question does indeed strike at the very heart of the issue of close communion. And we gladly address the question today. For if the communion table belongs to the Puritan Reformed Church, we can invite whomsoever we please to that table. We can either make the communion table as all-inclusive as we desire, inviting anyone and everyone, Or we can make it as narrowly exclusive as we desire, inviting only two or three to the communion table. However, dear ones, the communion table is not ours. It is the Lord's table. And therefore, we must order the Lord's table as he alone has authorized it in his holy word. Our convictions and our practices concerning the Lord's Supper must be authorized by the Lord's Word and not by our own word, not by our own ideas, not by our own thoughts, nor by our own desires. Thus, If the ignorant are excluded from the Lord's table until they grow in their knowledge of the faith, as in the case of children and new converts, it is because the Lord himself says through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.28, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Those who cannot examine themselves as to the doctrine and commandments of Christ and as to their sins and errors, they are to be kept from the Lord's table by the Lord's own word, not our word, by God's own word. Or if those professing faith in Christ prove to be scandalous in doctrine or in life, 
and are kept from the Lord's table until they manifest repentance in their speech and behavior. It is because the Lord himself says through the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. And should someone object that the passage just cited only addresses withdrawal from fellowship in an informal social context, then I would submit how much more should we withdraw from fellowship in an ecclesiastical context around the Lord's table? In other words, if withdrawal from fellowship is warranted in the lesser case, how much more it's warranted in the greater case? If in the common meal... How much more in the holy meal? Therefore, dear ones, for the very reason that the communion table is not our table, but is rather the Lord's table, we must only allow those professing Christians to the table whom the Lord himself authorizes to come to the table. Listen to the words of our larger catechism, question 173, as it also propounds a close communion. The question asks, may any who profess the faith and desire to come to the Lord's Supper be kept from it? The answer, such as are found to be ignorant or scandalous, notwithstanding their profession of the faith and desire to come to the Lord's Supper, may and ought to be kept from that sacrament by the power which Christ has left in his church until they receive instruction and manifest their reformation. They are to be kept by the power the keys of the kingdom which the Lord has invested in his church in the eldership until such ones manifest reformation in the case of scandalous sins and increase knowledge in the case of ignorance. Now, this is the view of the Lord's table we firmly believe that is taught in the Holy Scripture and was practiced by our Reformed forefathers, this view is commonly called close communion because it endeavors a near or close communion in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline around the Lord's table together. And this is the position wholeheartedly adopted and gratefully and thankfully received from the Lord himself by the Puritan Reformed Church. Dear ones, 
It is not every professing believer that is allowed at the communion table, as we have already noted, but only those who are trusting in Christ alone for their eternal salvation and who are seeking by God's grace to live faithfully, not sinlessly, but faithfully, repentantly, according to God's commandments. Not simply the last six commandments either. All ten of the commandments of God. But you see, it is true that all those who are regenerate have the right to come to the Lord's table. But only those who are living faithfully according to God's commandments can exercise that right to come to the Lord's table. Those believing, those professing believers who are kept from the Lord's table, we want to make it so clear to you. They are not hated, nor are they despised in the least because they are kept from the Lord's table. But are actually greatly loved. Loved to such an extent that we will not, as much as God allows us to, and as much as is within our own power, allow them to eat and drink judgment unto themselves. And such professing believers that are kept from the Lord's table are, by the elders of this church, lovingly shown where they are in error, where they are in sin, according to, not to our commandments, but according to God's commandments, and are thereby encouraged to manifest repentance, reformation, and a new obedience in their lives in order that they might join us around that blessed communion table. That's our desire. Last Lord's Day, we considered the command of Paul found in 1 Corinthians 5-7, wherein Paul says, Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. We noted that although Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 directly addresses the excommunication of one from the communion of the visible church, nevertheless, Paul also indirectly addresses the excommunication of the same man from the communion table as well. You cannot have excommunication from the visible church without also being implied excommunication from the communion table. Therefore, when Paul commands the church of Corinth through its elders, purge out, therefore, the old leaven, this apostolic command equally applies to purging out the scandalous from the communion with a faithful, visible church, as well as to purging out the scandalous from the communion with a faithful, visible church around its communion table. Dear ones, communion with a faithful, visible church and communion with that church around its communion table are inseparable ideas and practices that you can't pull apart. Keep that in mind. That is ever so crucial 
in considering the whole issue of close communion. Hence, by way of application, if a scandalous violator of the seventh commandment, like the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, who was guilty of incest, if such a man ought to be purged from the communion table, this being a sin against his neighbor, which Christ describes because it falls under the second table of commandments, Christ described the second table of commandments as the second great commandment. If he ought to be purged from the communion table for violating the second table commandments or the second great commandment, how much more ought a man, a scandalous violator of the first four commandments, to be purged from the communion table until he manifests repentance and reformation. The Lord Jesus called the first table commandments the great commandment. The great commandment. <clears throat> and so if a one who is obstinate continues in violations of the first commandment, say, holding to, maintaining, and professing false teaching. If he ought to be purged, he ought to be purged from the communion table. Just as those who obstinately violate the second commandment, who maintain and practice and profess that it is lawful to sing uninspired hymns in worship or to use instruments in the accompaniment in God's corporate worship. The same applies to those who violate the third commandment and desire to come to the Lord's table, who do not own their covenants, whether the covenant of marriage, whether the covenant made with a co congregation, or whether a covenant that is made by one's ancestors, a faithful and lawful covenant, which binds posterity and which is disavowed, not owned, owned, not practiced, not lived according to. That is perjury and covenant breaking as well. And the same applies to those who violate the fourth commandment. They ought to be kept from the Lord's table for breaking the Sabbath, for performing works that are not necessary upon the Lord's day. The Lord's day, this Lord's day, dear ones, as we approach our text, let us consider the following main points. First of all, an apostolic exhortation concerning close communion. Second, historical testimony concerning close communion. And third, objections answered concerning close communion. Our first point, an apostolic exhortation concerning close communion. 
And I refer you to that exhortation in 1 Corinthians 5.8 where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, let us keep the feast. In verse 7, Paul introduces the metaphor of leaven as typifying sin, which is to be purged out of the church and which is to be purged from around the communion table by way of church discipline. But as we noted last week, leaven also represents false teaching. It not only represents scandalous living, but scandalous opinions and views and doctrines that are held and practices of worship. For the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 16, verses 11 and 12, he calls the false teaching of the Pharisees leaven. Leaven. Thus, Paul is condemning a leavened or corrupted communion in the visible church. And a leavened or corrupted communion table. The idea of the purging of leaven actually takes us all the way back to the Passover of the Old Testament in which all leaven was to be removed from all the homes of the people of God in Israel. It was to be removed before celebrating the Passover, a feast which signified God's gracious deliverance, his salvation, which he poured out upon his people in setting them free from Egyptian bondage and bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Paul not only introduces here the metaphor of leaven, as it relates to the Passover, however, he also introduces another metaphor which relates to the Passover, and that is the lamb. The lamb which was sacrificed and offered at the time of the Passover. The lamb whose blood was put upon the doorposts. The lamb which was eaten. And this directed God's people of old to the Lamb of God who was to be sacrificed for the sins of all those who embrace him by faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Our Passover lamb is sacrificed for us. Now, as you consider that, how Paul is using leaven in this text and the Passover lamb, both which relate to the Old Testament feast of the Passover, unmistakably, Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians that the people of God in the Old Testament enjoyed communion with one another as the leaven of sin and error was purged from them. They enjoyed fellowship and feasted upon Christ who was to come as they purged out the leaven together. But Paul has just commanded in verse 7, using the language of the Passover, and what he exhorts the Corinthians to do in verse 8 is particularly significant to the issue of close communion. 
Why is it significant? Because the apostolic exhortation, let us therefore keep the feast. That, ex that exhortation that Paul gives has a verb, let us keep the feast. That, that verb that is used there appears in a Greek form which emphasizes not an explicit command, but rather a strong exhortation as close as you could get to a command as possible. But a strong exhortation to unite with him, the apostle, in celebrating the feast. Paul uses the present tense in the strong exhortation. In effect, he says, let us continue to keep the feast. Now, it should be apparent to us that Paul did not have the Passover in mind when he exhorted the Corinthians to continue to keep the feast. He was not saying, let's continue to keep that same Old Testament Passover feast together. What feast then were the Corinthians exhorted to continue to keep? Well, let me apply this or let me explain this by way of a general manner and then a specific manner. Generally, our lives should be a continual feast that we live before the Lord, offering our lives as living sacrifices to him, enjoying communion with him as we purge out the sin and error in our own lives. That should be going on progressively in sanctification generally. But specifically, they were to continue to keep the feast of the Lord's Supper. For what feast, I ask you, do we celebrate by Christ's appointment that is the new, uh, new covenant equivalent of the old covenant Passover? Is it not the Lord's Supper? In fact, according to Luke chapter 22, verse 15, when he gathered his disciples together and he celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, they gathered that particular day, it says, as well to celebrate the Passover. And the Passover then issued into the celebration of the Lord's Supper, pointing out very clearly the continuity from the Old Testament Passover into the New Testament Lord's Supper. I might mention as well that the Westminster Divines also applied these same verses in 1 Corinthians 5 and verses 7 and 8 to our present keeping of the Lord's Supper, when you compare the proof text that they used in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 29, section 8, when you look at the proof text that they used in Larger Catechism, question 171, and in Larger Catechism, question 173, and when you consider the Shorter Catechism, question 97, and you see they were drawing from these very verses, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, to speak of a close communion, purging the communion table. This is the feast, very specifically, that we are 
with the Apostle Paul to continue to keep. Although Paul speaks directly of putting the scandalous man outside the visible church until he repents in verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians 5, nevertheless, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 7 through 8 indirectly demonstrates that those guilty of scandalous sins and errors were not only to be purged from the Passover from the Old Testament as exemplified in removing the leaven from their homes, but also and likewise are to be purged at the present time from the Lord's Supper. And as we continue to read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 8, how are we to continue to keep the feast of the Lord's Supper wherein we celebrate the Lord's sacrificial death for us? How is that to be kept? How is it to be maintained according to the Apostle Paul? He says, not with old leaven. Not with the old leaven of sin and error. Neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. And that encompasses, again, those two words encompass all sin and error. But he says positively, this is how it's to be kept. Negatively, not this way, but positively this way. It is to be kept with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. There is to be no hypocrisy when we sit around the Lord's table together, feigning to believe and profess something that we don't believe or sitting around the Lord's table and confessing and professing our communion in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline with those there, when in fact there is no agreement, when in fact there is no communion in those truths. That's not sincerity. But he also says that we're to celebrate it with the unleavened bread of truth. That is that we are to celebrate it in agreement as to what the truth is, in professing the same truth, in practicing the same truth as the Lord has revealed in His Word and as is summarized in the form of sound words that are found in our confessional standards. Dear ones, if the Corinthians were not to enjoy close fellowship in a social context with those guilty of scandalous sins and errors, as is taught in 1 Corinthians 5, the end of the chapter, verses 9 through 13, they were not to keep company with such as were scandalous. And so in a social context, if Paul makes that clear, is it imaginable that Paul would tolerate the same scandalous people with whom they're not to share social communion, close communion in a social context? Is it, is it imaginable that he would all of a sudden open up the communion at the Lord's table and invite those same people to sit down with them around the Lord's table? God forbid. God forbid. 
Moving from the apostolic exhortation, let us consider, secondly, the historical testimony concerning close communion. And there is much, much historical testimony that could be offered. And I have simply narrowed it down to simply a couple references. Let me illustrate for you the practice of close communion. First, from the words solemnly sworn by our covenanted forefathers in the Solemn League and Covenant in 1643. For in swearing this covenant, they swore to uphold a close communion in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. Listen to their words. In the first article of the Solemn League and Covenant, they say that we shall sincerely, really and constantly through the grace of God endeavor in our several places and callings the preservation of the reformed religion in the Church of Scotland in doctrine, worship, discipline and government against our common enemies the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland in doctrine, worship, discipline and government according to the word of God and the example of the best reformed churches and shall endeavor to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction and uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory for worship, and catechizing, that we and our posterity after us may as brethren live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. Dear ones, that is a close communion in churches. The nearest possible conjunction and relationship in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory for public worship and catechisms. In the second paragraph, very quickly, listen to what our faithful forefathers said. <clears throat> That's the positive side of it. <clears throat> Who they say they have communion with. Now, consider the purging process. Purging out of the old leaven in the second paragraph. That we shall in like manner without respect of persons endeavor the extirpation, that means uprooting, of popery, prelacy, that is the form of church government in the Church of England presently practiced. That is church government by archbishops, Bishops, their chancellors, commissioners, deans, deans and chapters, archdeacons, and all other ecclesiastical officers depending on that hierarchy. And it continues, the things that should be purged, uprooted. Superstition, that is superstition in worship, things that are not commanded be offered to God in worship are called superstitions. Heresy, doctrine, or teaching that is promoted and maintained that is 
contrary to the sound doctrine of the Bible found in the scripture and contrary to the sound doctrine promoted in our confessional standards. Schism, division, dividing the body of Christ from its covenanted uniformity that was practiced, that was enacted in the Second Reformation is schism. Profaneness is to be purged. Making common and ordinary that which God says is sacred, like his Sabbath. And they add this catchphrase to catch everything else that needs to be purged. And whatsoever shall be found contrary to sound doctrine and the power of godliness. Lest, now this is the consequence, this is the implication or what follows from not purging when it's our duty to do so. Listen to what they say. It's absolutely true. Lest we partake in other men's sins and thereby be in danger to receive of their plagues and that the Lord may be one and his name one in the three kingdoms. So, faithful elders purge the communion table that they may not be partakers of other men's sins. Now let us see, having read the Solemn League and Covenant, that section from the Solemn League and Covenant, which very clearly exposes their doctrine of close communion, let us see the actual practice of the covenanted Church of Scotland through the acts of her General Assembly in her most pure times. That is, in the year 1638 to 1649. And as I said, I could go on and on and on with these types of quotes, but I point out to you this quote from Session 31, August the 7th, 1648. <clears throat> the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland said, The General Assembly, according to former recommendations, doth ordain that all young students take the covenant, that is, the Solemn League and Covenant, at their first entry into colleges, and that hereafter all persons whatsoever take the covenant at their first receiving of the Lord's Supper, requiring hereby provincial assemblies, presbyteries, and universities to be careful that this act be observed and account thereof taken in the visitation of universities and particular kirks and in the trial of presbyteries. Now, why is that significant? Because in owning the Solemn League and Covenant, they were owning a close communion with all of the churches in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. They were owning that. My last point, main point, is to consider objections concerning close communion. The first objection is that Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord, was admitted to the communion table with all of the other disciples. How can you argue a close communion if Judas came to the communion table? Well, I would offer or submit to you these reasons 
or these arguments to consider. It is most likely the case that Judas was not at the communion table when the Lord's Supper was celebrated, first of all. Before the Lord's Supper was eaten, a common meal was eaten, as was the practice among the Jews. It was during this common meal before the Passover was eaten and the Lord's Supper was eaten that these events where the Lord points out Judas, where he says, the one whom I dip the sop with will betray me. This occurred in the common meal, not most likely from the text, not during the time of the Passover, the Lord's Supper. In John 13, 1, in John 13, 1, we find these words. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He calls the, the, the meal, the Passover, which again uh, preceded immediately the Lord's Supper. But he says, the text says, before Jesus celebrated the feast of the Passover. Now he's going to indicate the things that occurred subsequently before Jesus celebrated the feast of the Passover. In verse 2. We find the words, and supper being ended. What supper? The common supper. The common meal which they ate and partake together. The devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Then we find the various things that occurred by way of the Lord pointing out that Judas was the one who would betray him. At the end of that discourse, Judas leaves and then the Passover begins and then the Lord's Supper. That seems to be the most likely way to understand what occurred during this particular time. However, I would secondly simply offer to you this. Even if Judas was present at the Passover and at the Lord's Supper, even if he was present, he was not yet guilty of either a professed error or a practiced sin. How did the Lord know of Judas's sin? Was it by way of mere human knowledge or was it by way of divine omniscience? Is divine omniscience God's knowing all things, is that the way that we judge who are worthy to come to the Lord's table and who are not? Of course not. He had not yet entered into publicly and scandalously for all to know and to see his professed error and his sin. And... Likewise, this passage then, even if he were present, cannot be used as a proof text for an open communion because we must exercise human judgment and knowledge. We don't have divine omniscience to determine who can and cannot be kept from the Lord's table. And so, 
the case does not fit the pattern of open communion, at least as advocated today. A second objection is that close communion is inconsistent with love for the brethren. Well, I would simply submit to you that true love for the brethren, dear ones, is not demonstrated in allowing those whom you love and who profess or practice scandalous violations of the Ten Commandments, whether in doctrine, worship, government, or discipline, to eat and drink judgment to themselves. That's not love to say, come and enjoy the Lord's table, though they are living and or professing a scandalous sinner error. That's not love. Proverbs 27.5 says, open rebuke is better than secret love. 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, that love rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. You want to see true love demonstrated, not a false or hypocritical love. It's not found in open communion. It's found in a close communion. There you find true and genuine brotherly love exhibited. It is not hatred or, or despising those who are kept from coming. It is love that keeps them from coming and continues to pray that God will manifest repentance and reformation in their lives so that they might join us. The third objection. Close communion is a hindrance to the union of Christians for it keeps professing Christians from the communion table. It's an actual hindrance. We talk a lot in this church about unity, about desiring and praying for unity. And yet some say, don't you deny it when you exclude Christians from your communion table. Again, I submit to you these arguments against that objection. First, the only basis for an ecclesiastical union among, amongst Christians is in the truth, as it's revealed in Scripture and summarized in faithful confessional standards, like the Westminster Confession of Faith. Can two walk together except they be agreed? We cannot talk about union where there are contradictory doctrines that are maintained and professed. There is not yet close communion. Let's not pretend that there is. Let's not be hypocritical. And I would also say with regard to this objection that open communion actually sacrifices the truth. It puts the truth upon the altar of compromise and allows professing Christians maintaining contradictory doctrines, worship practices, and forms of church government to the communion table. And thus, open communion is contrary to the biblical aim of union that is based upon the truth. And thirdly, I would say that a leavened or mixed 
communion is not true Christian union, but rather a confusion and a hypocrisy around the communion table. It's not communion when contradictory doctrines and practices in worship, when violations, scandalous violations of the Ten Commandments are not dealt with, but allowed to come and partake of the Lord's Supper. That's not communion. That's confusion. The fourth objection, and the last one that I will respond to, is this. We expect to commune with Christians of other denominations in heaven, and therefore should not, we should not refuse them communion at the Lord's table here on earth. We expect to be with these brothers and sisters in heaven. Why can't we practice that here upon the earth now? Well, I would offer to you that in heaven there will be no differing denominations. Praise God. There will not be any contradictory doctrines held in heaven. No differing practices with regard to worship, men worshiping as they please. There will be unity in the truth in heaven. And this, dear ones, is the communion for which we should pray and for which we should strive and which is pictured in our communion table in a close communion. That goal, that desire toward which we continuously strive. For the Lord has told us to pray Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's the communion. That's the communion that we desire to see within our church and around our communion table. Dear ones, it was a close communion and not an open communion that brought literally thousands of covenanters together from many miles in Scotland during times of great persecution to hear the word of God faithfully preached by men such as Cargill and Cameron and Rennick. And it wasn't simply the preaching of the word of God, but it was a table the communion table and a close communion around that table that brought them from hundreds of miles, some of them traveling many, many miles. Not having planes or trains or buses or cars, but coming in the worst types of weather, inclement weather, willing to, to weather the, the outward elements and also willing to to whether the persecution that they would be administered if they were found in this close communion. But hundreds and thousands of them would gather out in the, 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 the uh, country to celebrate a close communion with the saints in agreement in the truth before the Lord. It was the highlight of the year to the covenanters, seasons of communion together. And they were examined as to their faith 
And as to their practice, and upon examination, they were given a token. Uh, it's like a coin that they were given. And that token represented to them the privilege and the right to exercise that privilege in coming to the Lord's table. And dear ones, they were willing to die for that privilege. They were willing to suffer to enjoy that privilege. It was not a close communion that sent them scurrying and running in a hundred different directions. It was a close communion that they shared in the truth that brought them from hundreds of miles to enjoy that communion. It tells you how topsy-turvy the church is today because it is the close communion that so often sends people away from the church now rather than a close communion bringing them and saying, I identify with this group of Christians. I believe they are faithful and I want to partake of the Lord's Supper with them. I want to unite with them. They are faithfully seeking to keep the commandments of God. And their close communion was a foretaste of heaven to come. Dear ones, God grant to us to see the beauty of enjoying the communion table together with those to whom we are united in the truth and praying that God will one day restore and build up the fallen walls of Jerusalem that we might enjoy the same communion around the table that if we were to go to any large city throughout the world, we could sit down with them at their communion table and they could sit down with us at our communion table. What a joy and a delight to look forward to that day when the name of the Lord will be one throughout the whole earth. Please stand with me in prayer. O Lord our God, Thou hast greatly magnified Thy grace and mercy, greatly magnified Thy truth and worship, government and discipline in the Lord's Supper and in a close communion with one another. O Father, those of us who know it and enjoy it would not sacrifice it for anything on the face of the earth. It is a truth for which, Father, we are willing to be persecuted, ridiculed, mocked, and even to die for. We thank Thee, our God, that Thou hast given to us the Lord's Supper, that we might celebrate the great love of the Lord Jesus Christ to us, that we might celebrate all of the benefits and blessings of the new covenant and all the truths contained in the new covenant. We ask our Father that thou would seal the, these truths to our heart, that we would grow in our love and appreciation for them, that we would renew our vows this day to follow them, to uphold them, to maintain them, to profess them and live according to them. 
For we ask these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.